This is Jeremy Park, CEO of City Current, personally inviting you to Growth Current. Growth Current is our e-learning and online personal development platform with City Current. It's an opportunity to attend virtual events with global thought leaders, national guest speakers, and experts who can help you grow personally and professionally. It gives you access to success secrets, lessons learned, learning modules, and so much more. Subscriptions are only $8 a month, and you can do bulk subscriptions for your team. Check out growthcurrent.co to learn more. Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast, produced by City Current and brought to you by Lipscomb and Pitts Insurance. This show shares personal stories and insight from those who are giving back and making a difference so we can learn and do the same. We cover life lessons, business advice, passion, and purpose. Now here's our host, the CEO of City Current, Jeremy Park. Welcome to the Changemakers podcast produced by City Current and powered by Lipscomb and Pitts Insurance and Higginbotham. I'm your host, Jeremy Park. We're in for a treat. We have someone who knows entrepreneurialism, nonprofit leadership, executive leadership. She's the president and CEO of the Greater Memphis Chamber, our good friend, Beverly Robertson. Beverly, how are you doing? I am great, Jeremy, just running to try to keep up. I'm telling you, it's a lot going on in Memphis right now. If you don't feel it, you must be under a rock, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you and your team do amazing work when it comes to elevating the brand of Memphis, economic development. We'll talk about job force readiness. We'll talk about so many storylines, but let's start with getting to know you personally, especially for those who are outside of the Mid-South. Give us a little bit of your personal storyline in terms of where you grew up. Talk about your childhood. Well, I grew up uh, in an area that many people know of, if you're from Memphis, as Orange Mound. And it is a community where African-Americans were the first to own their own homes in the United States. And so it's a, a, a community that is filled with pride. There's a lot of loyalty. I went to a high school where there were standout basketball players that were nationally known, Larry Finch, Ronnie Robinson. Uh, and I had teachers that loved us and cared about us and did not mind disciplining us, calling us out. There was no pushback from parents. Parents said, yes, if you need to do it, do it. And I'm all behind you. I'm supportive of you. And by the way, if he does something in school or she does something, then let him come home and we'll see what happens from there. So I came from that generation where parents were super supportive of education and were always challenging us and pushing us. And so that area, I really lived in what I call the northern suburb of Orange Mound, which is the Beltlands, which is closer to our big stadium where a lot of football games are played and the Liberty Bowl is played. I could look over my fence and hear the wonderful screams from really what was the Pippin. So uh, I just want you to know I had a great childhood. I was in a family with a mom and dad. Uh, my dad was a truck driver. My mom was a stay-at-home mother because she had five children. And uh, she made it a point to cook breakfast, fix lunch, and we had dinner together every day. Our parents always told us that if you want something out of life, you got to work hard for it. Nobody's going to give you anything. And we were raised with a strong Christian foundation. So I grew up in what I now view as an ideal situation where we knew our neighbors and our neighbors would also call us out and discipline us as well. So it was great. I didn't think it was so great at the time, but now I really understand the value of what it did for us and what it instilled in us to care about our roots, to care about our neighborhood, to care about our community, volunteer and give back to it. So that was my upbringing. When you talk about living next to and seeing the Pippin, the Zip and Pippin, I know that was something that has been formative for you because you weren't allowed to always participate. And so talk about the Pippin and what that means to you now looking back. Yeah, that was when I was a little girl, you know, I would always hear the screams of the people, the exhilaration of riding on the Pippin, going up and coming down. We could hear the clack of the tracks in the background as we watched. But I realized that we as African-Americans could not participate on a daily basis. We could only go to the fairgrounds on Tuesday and to the zoo on Thursday. So it always made me wonder if I'd ever get a chance to ride the Pippin. Uh, and so in the 60s, 
that story late in, into the 60s or later into the 60s that changed and we were able to ride it every day. And what I, I used that analogy when I came on board at the Greater Memphis Chamber, because what I realized is that there are a lot of people on the street corners, a lot of people out of work who uh, haven't had an opportunity to ride, quote unquote, a Pippin or to be able to access job opportunities. They either don't know how to do it or they can't connect with people who do know how to guide them in the right direction. And what I remind people is it's okay to make space on the Pippin for those people who have been left out and disenfranchised. And guess what? You don't have to get off the ride. We just need to add more seats to the ride. So we expand the base. Nobody has to get off because others are entering the workforce. They just need to add more opportunities. And those opportunities are coming our way in Memphis, Tennessee right now. Absolutely. Talk about stepping in on the career track and the corporate track, especially with Holiday Inn Worldwide. Talk about your experience and getting off on the corporate track. Well, I tell people all the time, one of the best educations I could have ever had was working in corporate America. And the reason I say that is because there are a wide range of opportunities that exist in corporations that if you're willing to step out there and take advantage of them, uh, you could build a, a huge resume and a wonderful uh, bank of experiences to take with you for the rest of your life. So I entered really at Holiday Inn at a time when I had graduated from college and I started in reservations. And that's taking Holiday Inn reservations globally for folks. But I soon had an opportunity to move out of that into a management training program where I got experience in marketing. I got experience in communications, national advertising, national promotions, uh, marketing research and development, which really stands me in good stead even today. But I moved from there into strategic planning and worked on the brand development teams that created what you now know as Hampton Inns and you know, Holiday Inn Resorts and Crown Plazas. Uh, so that was the era of sub-branding and separate branding. I got that experience, then moved on to strategic planning, then marketing, communications, internal and external, and really left when Bass PLC out of London bought Holiday Inn and moved the company headquarters to Atlanta. So I had uh, about 19 years of experience. And by the way, I also worked at their training hub, which was called Holiday Inn University, where we actually built inspection programs so that inspectors could go out and be engaged uh, with the hotel leadership to make sure that they met our standards. So I developed and changed standards for the brand. So it was invaluable experience that I gained working in one company. I had so many different jobs and so many opportunities. I just needed to step into them and take advantage of them. Give me one just fun memory that pops out or stands out to you during your time there. So it could be uh, an experience on, you know, just a, a trip or a team that you had a chance to work with. What was a fun experience that stands out to you? Well, because I was in communications at one point during my career, uh, the Uni Memphis State University of Memphis was in the finals. And so we, as a department, decided that we wanted the president of the organization to recognize that within the organization. So we created a theme called Tiger Paws. In other words, let's take a pause, but we had Tiger Paws in the floors of, of the uh, corporation because it was representative. We were the tigers and they had paws, but we wanted to take a pause to allow everybody the opportunity to really view the game. That was fun. We had, uh, we decorated offices. We saw the game, we cheered them on. I think they won that first game and they went all the way to the finals uh, when we were there, but that was one instance. And one other one was, we were trying to, to determine a way for employees to understand that service is the key to success in everything that we did at Holiday Inn at the time. And so we created this uh, license plate that everybody uh, had 
and it said drive service home. So it was on your car. You drove your car home, but also it was about driving service home as a part of the culture of the organization. So that was uh, that was it. And then we used to do thingathons, which would be outside activities that the presidents of the divisions would have. It was just a, a magnificent culture uh, that was created at Holiday Inn. So we did lots of fun things. Well, I love just the creativity and obviously the marketing behind all this. And speaking of marketing, you're a small business owner, entrepreneur as well. So talk about that side of you. Yeah, that was an interesting twist for, for me. My husband and I were walking on the beach one day in Florida. And what we said to ourselves, he was in TV broadcast. He was in the broadcast industry as a salesperson. And I was in corporate America. And he said, you know, we really should try to go out on our own and start our own business. And I said, that sounds like a good idea. We said, we, we're driving success internally in an organization. Maybe we could do it on our own. A lot of people are very fearful about stepping out uh, with what they know because they're not sure that they can make it. But then you have, you have two people stepping out. That's really a challenge. But he stepped first and we started our own business. At that time, it was a sole proprietorship. But when I joined the company back in the early, or I should say the, you know, yeah, the early 1990s, uh, it became Trust Marketing and Communications Consortium. And we are 30 years old this year and we are still here. Thank God we're here and we're growing and we're thriving. And I will say that this whole uh, social justice movement has made the work that we do much more relevant to huge companies and corporations because what many are realizing is that when they assess the buys that they make and who they make those buys with, they find that African-American firms have gotten the short end of the stick, the, the real short end of the stick. And uh, they hadn't really acknowledged that before, but when they started doing deeper dives into their data, they were astounded by what they found. And so they're beginning to change and beginning to make sure that there is equitable representation uh, uh, around the dollars that are spent in the various marketplaces across the country. And when you realize that uh, African-Americans are great consumers, they're great dressers, they're great shapers of culture, you realize that they are tremendous consumers that really don't necessarily believe that all general marketing is talking to them. Uh, so you have to talk to them on their terms and on their turf. And I think that's something that is being realized. So we're thriving as a direct result of what has happened over the last two or three years. And all of this just, it goes to show when we'll talk about it a little bit, just the love for small businesses, the support for entrepreneurs, you know all of this firsthand. Let's go back to social justice, because a big piece of your storyline is being president of the National Civil Rights Museum. Talk about your time there, because you are instrumental when you look at $43 million raised and your efforts and revamping and renovations and endowment, like so much really on, on your shoulders there, which was huge for our community, but also obviously from a global standpoint, the National Civil Rights Museum, what it means, especially around social justice. So talk about your time at the National Civil Rights Museum. Oh, that was some of the most incredible time uh, of my life, really. And uh, while I wasn't a museum curator uh, by profession, I think when the previous director left, there was only one before me. Uh, I came on board really in the so, sort of mid to late 90s. And, um, you know, I, I, I basically said to those who approached me, look, I love to visit museums. I know nothing about running them. I'm a very honest person. I'm very straightforward. So I don't want to sell you a bill of goods. And you look up one day and you say, well, I thought she, I, I told them from the beginning, you know what they said to me? They said, we can find people who understand the museum business. We need somebody who can run a business and run it well. Uh, and so I stepped into that position and I will tell you, it became more of a calling than a job for me. Because as I would walk through the halls and look at the exhibitions, you know, the voices of the people who were on the walls almost would cry out to me because it really taught me that this history 
needs to be preserved. It's not taught in history books anymore. You know, a significant portion of this history is left out. And I think that unless museums existed, it would not be preserved and curated for future generations. And it is foundational to who we are in America as a nation. And so it was very important for me as I stepped into this space to respect the institution, particularly because it is the site where one of America's greatest human rights leaders died on the balcony coming into Memphis to help struggling sanitation workers, which were viewed as the least of these at that time. So we didn't view them the same way. Uh, but because Dr. King died there and the leaders like the Army Bailey and A.W. Willis had the foresight to preserve the site and not destroy it and tear it down. And it became not just a site of great tragedy, but a site of great triumph because of the education that is taught through the halls and the walls and the interactives that exist in that space. It chronicles, for those of you who don't know this, key episodes of America's human rights story. And it shares with you other everyday people who were influential in driving transformational change in America and a lot of the legislation that we now enjoy that opened the doors of opportunities to many of us who otherwise would not have had that opportunity. One of my greatest experiences at the museum was the opportunity to travel to South Africa to invite Nelson Mandela to accept our Freedom Award after he uh, got out of prison because he was incarcerated in prison for about 35 years and actually got out, became the first democratically elected president of South Africa, uh, was really deeply engaged in doing such positive things and challenging apartheid. And so I went there, invited him to come to us and followed up when I got back. But I'll tell you, I got really nervous because we were getting close to the Freedom Award and I hadn't heard from him. And my board was pressuring me, look, we sent you to South Africa to go get him. Now, where are you? What is going on? And so one day I was walking by the fax machine because, you know, our time differential is so significantly different. And I saw, uh, I got something on the fax that said, Nelson Mandela will come, President Mandela will come. Boy, I ran all around the office holding it up and swinging it around saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. So that's one of my greatest experiences that I had running the National Civil Rights Museum. The Freedom Award is an award given to a national and an international person whose life's work is centered around changing lives and changing the course of history in their respective fields or globally for all people. And so that was one of the most exciting moments that I had. We did so many other things there. I would just invite people to come. If you have not been to the National Civil Rights Museum, you're missing an important part of history, an important part of our culture. Absolutely. It is tremendously powerful and moving. And anytime we have guest speakers, as you know, we take them to National Civil Rights Museum because we want them to see and feel all of that. And it really is one of those that is a life-changing opportunity when you go through. So I agree 100%. Outside of Nelson Mandela and getting here being the biggest challenge, what was another challenge that you overcame? But when you look back, realize, wow, this was a great learning experience and a great pivotal opportunity for the National Civil Rights Museum. So what was one of the big challenges that you overcame? Well, I have to say, you know, when I stepped into the role um, as CEO of the National Civil Rights Museum, I did not realize the magnitude to which I would have to raise significant dollars. Anybody who lives in the nonprofit world, who leads a nonprofit organization, is constantly challenged with having to raise funds for the institution. And when you have so many worthwhile, you know, in Memphis, we have, you know, two or 300 nonprofit organizations who are all buying for dollars to support and sustain their institutions. So what happened is I had to learn how to build the message, how to tell the story 
of the value of it. And I had to answer the question, what would happen if you were not here? Uh, and you have to think very deeply about what would happen if the museum were not here, if it did not exist. A whole generation of people would not understand their history as clearly or, nor as well. They wouldn't understand what has made America great. It's being able to overcome the obstacles, even if it's through struggles, overcoming those obstacles and being able to realize a brighter day on the other side of them. And yes, it takes sacrifice. And yes, some people had to die uh, to be able to see that. But we do see a different day. We're not the same as we were 100 years ago in this country. And that's because of the people that we talk about in that museum, but raising money, developing the story and the case for support, identifying how to align that with the specific values of a company or corporation and doing it in a compelling way that would move them to say, I wanna contribute uh, to the National Civil Rights Museum. And one of the beauties of the work was that this message that we crafted resonated with not just businesses in Memphis, but businesses all over the country who really saw this as a way to integrate this into their diversity training. Um, we also had tours from San Francisco come every year for a number of years while I was there. And they were all Caucasian, uh, Asian, Hispanics who never really knew about the civil rights movement because it didn't occur there. And they would leave weeping, but informed and inspired by what they saw. So there are a myriad of emotions that you receive, but just being able to raise money and expand the audience uh, who received the message were two other big important um, assets that were created as a direct result of my uh, work at the National Civil Rights Museum. Yeah, I, I love it. And you did such a tremendous job. And, uh, and that's really where I got to know you personally a lot better as well. Let's carry this forward into the work of the Greater Memphis Chamber. You step in in a pivotal time, really, for the Chamber. And when you talk about the power of leadership, messaging, storytelling, everything that we've kind of talked about, you know, kind of leading in, I think all of that prepared you for this opportunity in a powerful way. Talk about stepping in with the Greater Memphis Chamber and kind of those those first months, if you will, of, of kind of assessing where you are, what needs to be done to start elevating for our city. Wow, that was um, that was a real challenge because of the circumstances that existed uh, that caused me to enter that space uh, again. Um, had not worked at a chamber before. Uh, had led the museum, had worked in corporate America, was an entrepreneur. The only thing I hadn't done was be in government service uh, yet. But stepping in, I recognized that there would be some challenges. And actually, I met with everybody on my team. Uh, some people thought I only wanted to meet with the leadership team, but I needed to meet with everybody from top to bottom to really understand what they were feeling, where they were, and, and really to ask the basic question, what is the work of the chamber? Tell me the work of the chamber. Simple question. Now, I had about 35 staff members and I got 35 different answers. But, but from that came something really significant and really important. Number one, I created an easy, simple way to remember the work of the chamber. And I characterize it with the letters P, E, W, Q. The E is at the center of it. It is at the epicenter of the work we do because it stands for economic development and it's about attracting new investment and higher wage jobs and helping existing businesses expand and grow. Economic development. None of that would be possible without the W, which is the workforce. You've got to have a talented pipeline to be able to attract businesses. So the E, economic development, the W, workforce, talented pipeline, the P is about creating a positive business operating environment, which would incent businesses outside of Memphis to want to come into the space of Memphis, Tennessee. And we have such tremendous assets. So we actually explode those or 
make sure that the people coming understand that we've got road, rail, river, runway, we're centrally located. We have assets that make it attractive. We have great people, great food, great uh, museums, great arts. We just, we're, we're a great city. We're a great city. And uh, one of our strongest assets happen to be our people. So Pew is what we do at the chamber all day long. But realizing that, you know, it's really interesting that I wasn't there a year before we hit the pandemic. And then not long after that, there was a George Floyd incident. And boy, oh boy, <laughs> did that create some challenges. Well, let's go ahead and dive in deep on that. You and I talked about it on a prior radio show interview from protest to progress. So I want you to, to give a little bit of that backstory again, just for context, but I want to dive in a little deeper than we had a chance to on the radio show. So talk about protest to progress as kind of a storyline, and then we'll dive into what that means. Yeah. So one of the, just as context, uh, after George Floyd died, the Black Lives Matter uh, entity here in Memphis did a march. And that march downtown resulted in a broken window, store window. Uh, and um, I later learned that Black Lives Matter paid for the replacement of that window. But the night that that happened, I called my mayor and I said, Mayor, can I help you? And he said, absolutely. So we met a couple of weeks later. But that really was the context of how we really started protest to progress. And you want me to continue? Or, well, I think, no, I mean, I, I think the, the powerful piece of this is you were able to convene. And I think going back to just the trust, the respect, the relationships, everything that you've, you've built up over your career, but also to the National Civil Rights Museum, a lot of that, I think, really laid the foundation because to do what you did would be difficult, especially for someone like me just stepping in. And I think that's where the storyline really is important when you look at what it means for our city, for you to be that catalyst, to be able to literally invite all the activists and everyone involved, business leaders too, to come in and convene, but then tell the business leaders, hey, be quiet, just listen. And let's work through this together and then create some actionable roadmaps and strategy with some tracking mechanisms that we can follow up with that shows real progress. So it's not just lip service. It's actually like tangible results that we can drive change and forward progress. So I think there's a lot of cool storylines, but it goes back to your leadership experience, your relationships, and the way that you conduct yourself, obviously, from trust and integrity that was really able to do everything that, that you did. So kind of add, add yeah. some meat on the bone of that, that storyline there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was, it was interesting. Uh, I, I wasn't sure. Uh, I was convinced that if they stuck with me, we would be successful. But I have to say this. I have to say that the activists were not encouraged. They did not, on the front end of this, believe that there would be anything constructive that would come out of it. And they pulled me aside and they said to me, listen, we know you, but let me just tell you that we've been at this table before with corporations. Uh, they haven't been truthful. They've said they're going to do things. They haven't done them. So we don't have a lot of trust nor respect because, you know, we've been here too many times and uh, nothing's happened. I just said to them, stick with me, just stick with me for a short period of time and let's see where we go. And so it was really challenging to get businesses to the table because when they realized that activists were gonna be at the table, they didn't know if they were gonna get victimized, shouted down, talked about badly. And so they were, many were hesitant to come, but I did convince about eight at that first meeting to come and just listen. And, and because we had clergy, activists, and business leaders, we wanted to make sure that everybody was quiet for the first meeting and heard the voices of the activists. And did they not talk? I will tell you, I think at that first meeting, our businesses learned that activists can be extremely intelligent. They're extraordinarily intelligent. Number two, they do their homework. Number three, they have data. Number four, they represent all walks of life. We had somebody with disability, somebody that dealt with housing, somebody that dealt with voting, 
uh, we had Micah at the table, which is a congregation of congregations that get together to drive change. So we had all kinds there and they actually talked to everyone about here's the work of my organization and here's why this work is important. And the other two meetings were really about allowing the clergy and the business leaders to talk. At the end of the day, we came up with four major areas that the activists felt were extremely important to be able to address. And that was a living wage, community reinvestment and transportation, good transit. Uh, the third one was equitable MWBE contrast, uh, contracting because that is usually a problem. Minority and women-owned businesses always tend to be the later ones to be added to the contracting list. And so we have to literally fight often to be able to secure contracts. And then the last one was corporate and community board participation, which we learned some things about that by doing the research. But business leaders led each one of those groups and activists and clergy and business leaders attended each of the sessions. Out of that came a plan with action steps, timelines, and it was adopted and approved by the board and our chairman circle, which is our highest level of investors. And we executed it and created two reporting sessions on an annual basis. And the first session, I have to tell you, the activists were blown away at what had been accomplished. They realized that pre-pandemic wages were you know, uh, 10 to maybe 12 or $13 an hour. As a result of what happened in the broader environment uh, and the need for them to attract employees at a time of a pandemic, wages had elevated to 15, 17, $19 an hour. So the wage issue was being addressed um, not necessarily only because of protested progress, but because there were variables in the environment that drove companies to be more competitive. And to do so, they had to drive change within their organization. And now some of those jobs that, you know, were 13, 15 an hour are now $20 an hour. So people have an opportunity to elevate. We have an opportunity to elevate the bottom. You know, Memphis has a, a very poor inner city, but now that these opportunities are available, you've got an opportunity to be able to have benefits, health care, retirement, tuition paid education. There is a lot out here for us to take advantage of. We simply need to make individuals aware of those opportunities that exist and take care of them. It was a tremendous opportunity for Memphis to demonstrate that we can work together, we can collaborate. And when we collaborate, we can get things done and you don't lose. It's a win-win for everybody when that happens. We are always reticent. We're fearful about what's going to happen and what are they going to say and what are they going to do. But out of the process came mutual respect, mutual understanding of who these activists are and who are these corporations that we always talk bad about. You know, uh, you get a chance to sit eye to eye and face to face with these corporate leaders and share your story. In return, they get to talk about the things that they're doing and why they're doing them. And whether you always agree, there is dialogue. And when you have dialogue, you're promoting and fostering understanding and respect. So it was a tremendous part process. I don't know if I'm the only one could, who could have done it. I'm just glad I was in a place that allowed me to be able to do that because it will make a difference in this community for many years to come. And I hope if we ever are in situations like that, there'll always be somebody who will step up and say, look, I don't know where we're going with this, but I've got to try. I've got to try because what I realize, is, and while some were sort of saying, well, what are we doing? Is this a social program that you're... What they don't realize is that there is no economic development if a city is burning, if a city is in chaos, if a city is being destroyed. There is no economic development. And in, in, indeed, the companies here are looking to leave. I mean, a lot of companies from the East Coast are looking to move to Memphis 
because of some of the things that happened. So we are the beneficiaries of having a calm city that addressed issues that have been historic in the marketplace. And at the same time, it is a city that is engaging and attracting new business opportunities from other places. So it was about economic development as well. You know, so uh, that, was, uh, that was a very unique experience. And, and I have to tell you, Jeremy, it was really powerful as yeah. well. Well, I greatly appreciate everything that you personally obviously did uh, and your team and everyone involved to be able to, to do, just like you said, what was really necessary to keep our community calm and focused and, and having the relationship building conversations versus the other side of the coin. So um, greatly appreciate what you did for our community. What advice would you give for business leaders? I think one of the things that you and I have talked about off camera is the trend now, and there's a lot of trends around just what's going on, but for the business community, consumers and employees both, asking companies to take a stand, to be involved in these conversations around social justice and what's right. And I think for years before, companies could kind of sit on the sidelines and they didn't have to necessarily take a political stand. But I think now, especially with social media and just everything that's going on, companies, the hand is forced. Like people want to know, where do you stand? And so what advice would you give? Because I think many struggle with that, especially for uh, white businessmen. Like, what do I do? What do I say? How do I react? What advice would you give? Well, one of the things I would say is that you have a new generation of young people out here. And these young people are much more savvy. Um, they also uh, interact cross-culturally, you know, cross-ethnic groups. They have an appreciation of differences and they don't like inequity and they don't like unfairness. And I would say to companies, get to know your multicultural audiences. You know, don't, dis, don't, don't be dismissive. You know, get to know people who are in the uh, LBGT groups that exist. Get to know your uh, millennials and your Gen Zs and understand them and have internal focus groups with them and ask them, what are the things you're most concerned about out here? What are the things you're most concerned about internally? You know, and what are your suggestions and recommendations for change? Don't just sit back and allow things to happen and you don't seize control of those from the standpoint of at least having some productive dialogue. You may learn some things about issues that you uh, have always been on the sidelines of that you may wish now to become engaged in, because as you've talked to your various audiences, you understand the value of what it is they're saying. So communicate, uh, don't push it aside, don't act like it doesn't exist. Cause you know, a lot of times we sweep things under the carpet and act like they gonna go away, but they're seething just beneath the surface, which is why we're seeing some of what's going on in America right now. You can't allow that to happen. You've got to be able to address it head on, even if it means it's an uncomfortable conversation. You know, and what I would also say is there are institutes, the National Civil Rights Museum has a uh, social justice institute where they train uh, senior level leaders, presidents, VPs in ways of how to recognize and address some of the things that they're going to be seeing as they move forward. So it will give them an action plan as to how to manage, how to handle, how to recognize, and then how to really integrate more diversity on your corporate boards. You know, there are ways in which you can have the voices because if you're all one thing on the board, you're all going to be thinking one way on the board and you'll never be able to see that there's another way, there's another side and this side could impact your business if you're not listening to it. So it's not just about, you know, the social side of it. It really is about smart economics internally. So, so don't get it twisted. Don't just think that it's just, you know, it's just a goody two shoes kind of, no, 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 no. It can impact your bottom line directly if you don't pay attention. Yeah. And I personally view it as 
be an upstander versus a bystander. And so try to proactively step in and make a difference. I, I love the fact that you throw out the tip on looking at your board. Give me one more when it comes to businesses being more culturally focused and aligned and like what, what's another just recommendation or tip that you wish every business would take to heart? <laughs> well, you know, I, I wish that every business would actually decide to have some affinity groups and growth programs for uh, people who are different in their organizations. Because one of the things that happens is, you know, people who are uh, minority or are of the minority ethnic of minority ethnic groups uh, tend to not get the same measure of opportunities that exist. They're not uh, always chosen for training programs that lead to senior level programs. Um, I think that just having training programs that steward them up, that build on their skills, that give them what they need. Other people have been in those programs for years and have been able to move up. But it seems that so many are so many minorities are confined to positions for 10 years. Well, now this younger generation is not going to be with your company for 10 years, you know, because they don't believe in that. They believe that they have to go where the opportunity is. And companies have to learn how to deal with that, too. I mean, it's a new day for corporations. And so you need to be able to say, look, what is it going to take for me to keep you here for five years? You know, you know, how are we going to be able to manage our business? You know, help me to understand what are the things I need to be thinking about that I need to do differently through these programs. Uh, that will allow us to be able to have a measure of stability as we move and advance our work forward. So being sensitive to that and utilizing training programs to grow your internal talent and your internal pipelines. You know, I, I don't say there's anything wrong with looking outside because the best situation is where you have outside perspective and inside wisdom, Right outside perspective and inside wisdom. And I think those things go together well. Let's carry that conversation into workforce development, workforce training initiatives. You've been once again on the front line, some big wins for our area in terms of new companies locating and building here. And that leads to new job opportunities. And when you talk about companies investing in their teams and growing them, yes, that's talent development and talent retention, but in the greater scheme too, it's a lot of activation and workforce development. So talk about why that's so important and some of the initiatives on your end. Yeah, workforce is one of the highest priorities that we've got right now. Uh, we get, we've gotten so many calls from businesses uh, every day. Uh, I will say this, that 2021 was the best economic um, development year that we've had in the last 20 years. I mean, we, we had 28 deals. We attracted about 9,000 jobs, including Ford's. Um, 5,800 jobs, and those average salaries were about $50,000. That's not bad. $50,000 can, can do a lot, you know, and this was in spite of a pandemic. This happened. But I want people to understand that we're moving into a different phase of growth in the United States. You know, there have been, there are four industrial revolutions. The first one was when we used steam and water to power production uh, the second industrial revolution was when we introduced electric power for mass production. The third one was the use of electronics and information technology uh, to power production and automate systems. But this is the fourth one that we're coming up on, and it's all about digitization, robotics, artificial intelligence, 3D printing. It's all about that. And we are not yet fully prepared to be able to engage uh, with companies on that because we don't have the workforce that we need to be able to do that. So what we're doing is we're working with a set of partners and those partners include the University of Memphis, Southwest Tennessee Community College, let's see, TCAT, uh, the Shelby County School System. We're beginning to communicate data to Shelby County Schools because what we recognize is if you are teaching young people for the jobs that exist in the future, you got to know what the skill sets are because you may need to change your curricula to be able to address those needs. You know, more tech is a partner, but we got to bring all the training partners together 
And we'd love to be able to create a one-stop shop where we got a series of training programs together so that when people come who don't know about it, they get to talk to the Mortex in Southwest Tennessee and they get to see what is available. The, the truth of the matter is, is we pushed uh, being a college grad, my parents did to me and yours probably did as well. But what we're realizing now is that in order for you to make a good living, you can also choose a vocation and you can go through a program that allows you to get a certification at the end, we're standing up a business and a salary that allows you to take care of your family, whether it's 50, 60, 70, $80,000 a year, uh, you'll be able to get a certification and creating a one-stop shop that will allow us to have accelerated training because we got to scale up quickly. We can't walk into this space. We got to run. The first car comes off the line at the end of 24 and big time in 25. That gives us two years and really one and a half, if you really want to know the truth. So we've got to work with all of our partners, Workforce Investment Network, all of the training providers to say, let's go. We got to go get it. And these training programs can be eight weeks to 20 weeks, and they're stackable. So if you go through a 20-week program, get a certification that makes you eligible for a couple of jobs, you go another 20 weeks, you got five jobs that you're eligible for, and you got salaries that are really salaries that will allow you to purchase a car and keep it, to educate your children, to buy a home. That's why we're not walking into the space. That's why we've got to run and we can't do it as a single entity because we don't train anybody, we convene. And I wanna be clear about that. We are conveners and we're informers and we've got a data because we've got a center for economic competitiveness that produces the data and the metrics. Look. We're graduating about 5,800 STEM students. We need 20,000, 20,000 to be able to handle what is going on out here. You know, you got the code crews out here who are doing a great job in the technology space, but we are going to attract them. We'll attract the businesses, but we got to get the workforce ready. And so we've got to have a massive communication and marketing campaign so that adults and parents will understand the value. We need to continue to work with Memphis and Shelby County Schools to make sure they understand the skills that are required. We gotta have dual enrollment programs so that for those that are not on the college track, cause we still want people to go to college. Now, I'm not saying we do this at the expense of college, but what I realize is 50% of the students that graduate from high school are not going to college. So we need to take that 50% and do something with them to get them into the talent pipeline so they can take care of their families. I know I've said a lot and I probably need to stop talking so fast, but I wanna get this out there because I need for people to understand how important this is. This is our time in Memphis. We've got to take advantage of it now. And we've also gotta make sure that our exi existing businesses don't die because their employees leave to go to Ford. So there are two major goals we've got. We've got to help our existing businesses by providing a pipeline for them. We got to create a workforce for these new skill sets that are going to be used. And, and a lot of these companies, you know, we're a huge distribution supply chain. We have a huge network here. We're not going to abandon that because we need that. You know, we learned when the bridge closed that Memphis was the center of commerce for the United States. Our Mississippi River, our bridge, uh, the number of trucks that come over that bridge, five class one railroads here, the world's busiest cargo airport. Look, we can't abandon that. Those are true assets, but we've got to get people trained to be able to deal with what those future jobs look like. Yeah, and all of that creates a really powerful ripple effect when you look at what that means for our community for, um, you know, obviously discretionary income going up, more creative opportunities for more entrepreneurs and businesses moving here, crime reduction, like all of that creates a powerful ripple effect with everything that you're talking about. That's a much larger impact for our community, for everyone involved. So I think that's where it's imperative for us as all of us to be involved in this conversation, to be upstanders, to be involved in what you're doing and, and what the community is trying to do for the larger for the larger scheme, especially. 
touch on the small business piece of this too, because that's the one area we haven't touched on, but we've done, you know, prior radio shows on that as well. You have a small business uh, resiliency playbook that you put out to help small businesses. I know that's a big thrust for the greater Memphis chamber is supporting small businesses. That's a huge number of your membership. So talk about the focus for small businesses as well. Yes. Yes. You know, uh, oftentimes when people think about a chamber of commerce, they think about big business, right? Uh, 89% of our membership is small business. And so for that segment of the industry, they're the ones who went through, you know, if big business has got a cold, they had pneumonia and want life support. So we needed to make sure that our businesses would be able to weather any other crises or acts of God that occurred to them. So we convened a group of business leaders to inform uh, our small uh, business resiliency playbook, which is on our website, which can be accessed by anybody, any small business, whether you're a member or not. But there were members who helped to create it. They were involved in it. Larger businesses participated in it. And really, it goes through every aspect of business operations, from your finances to your workforce to uh, what do you do about mental health? How do you keep people whole when they have to go through all of this? So it is a tremendous tool because we've realized that small business is the engine that drives the economy. Um, And while big businesses still serve a major role in terms of employment, we recognize that entrepreneurs are important. They're energized and they need to exist to energize society, the economy, and drive things forward. And it's also an outlet for people who are of the creative class, who don't see their place within corporate America or the institutions of higher learning. There is a space and a place for them uh, in the entrepreneurial realm. But I will tell you, our small businesses also, you know, have a challenge with health insurance. We've just introduced a health insurance plan to help small businesses. So for the research that we've done around small businesses, we've learned a lot about what they need, what they don't have. And we are trying to provide some of those things so we can ensure their success. And they are so appreciative and they are so taking advantage of these things that have been specifically customized for them. Let's wrap up with a lightning round. So it's short questions, short answers. What do you like to do to relax? Read, travel. Where do you like to travel? Give me a favorite vacation spot outside of the Mid-South. One of my favorite is Italy. I love to go to Italy. I've been to Rome. I've been to uh, Bologna. Several areas in Italy are really special for me. If I'm going inside the United States, I I, I actually love the Caribbean as well because it's weather and it's beach that we don't have close. So I like that. New York is always a great place. D.C. is also great. And then coming in on, you know, South Carolina, Charleston, uh, Hilton Head, uh, North Carolina is, is beautiful as well. And then out west L.A., look, America is beautiful. Get out and see it, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> Memphis, come to Memphis and see what we have to offer because we're a great spot to come and we've got some of everything here. Well, when you're bringing guests to Memphis, what are your go-to spots? Where do you like to take them? Ooh, obviously to a barbecue place because they've got to go. Their National Civil Rights Museum is another place that they should go. And certainly to some of the shows that we have at the Orpheum, uh, those Broadway shows. If you can't get to New York, that's all right. Come to the Orpheum because you'll get to you'll get to see and experience that. And frankly, Graceland is an interesting place to visit. It's not far from where I live. And and really and truly, it is something that I think Memphians should take the time out to visit. And our art museums, the Brooks is great. You know, we just have a lot of assets. And if the NBA is playing, you better support the Memphis Grizzlies. So those are some of the things that, you know, the river, just walking on the Mississippi, walking in Memphis on the Mississippi River is a wonderful thing to do as well. So we've got so many things, great food everywhere. There are few places that I wouldn't recommend. Uh, And when you start thinking about barbecue, I don't know, Cozy Corner, you know, you got A&R, you got a central barbecue, you've got 
we have so many barbecue. Augustus fried chicken, don't forget them. Uh, we've got so much to do. The Peabody, you got to go see the ducks. Um, you know, every time I open my mouth again, I'm going to be quiet, Jeremy, because I can <laughs> I was going to let you roll with it. I love it. So what is a family tradition? And it can be you growing up or, you know, your family now. What, what can be a family tradition? Or what is a family tradition that stands out to you and puts a smile on your face? Well, you know what? The one thing that we do that I so love is I have three adult children now and I have a grandchild. And we, every year, go on a family vacation. And all of us, my sons are out of town, and and one's in Miami, one's in D.C., but they fly to whatever the destination is. And sometimes we'll we'll get a house, and we'll stay there, and sometimes we'll stay at a hotel. But whatever the case may be, it's a time for us to reunite, uh, to have fun together, like we used to when they were growing up, you know, when children get grown, sometimes they don't want to fool with you. Uh, But our kids always look forward to the family vacation that we started years ago, and we are continuing it even until this day. I love it. What is a quote, and you don't have to get it verbatim, but a quote or a saying that inspires you? You've never lived a perfect day until you've done something for someone they could never do for themselves. You've never lived a perfect day until you've done something for someone that they could never do for themselves. That's awesome. What is some advice or something that uh, someone, it could be a mentor, a teacher, your parents, something that they've said, a lesson learned perhaps that still sticks with you today? I had a boss in corporate that told me packaging is everything because people see you before they hear you. And the second thing that I will never forget is dress for the job you want, not for the one you have. Dress for the job you want and not for the one you have. And I've always kept those things in mind because I am particular about me representing the chamber, me representing the National Civil Rights Museum. What that says about me and how I need to present myself and what my brand needs to look like wherever I go, I am representing Memphis, Tennessee. And so when people see me, they see Memphis. And I want to represent my city well. I want people to think nothing but the best about where I come from and the entities that I represent. Yeah, that's awesome. And you represent us better than anyone I know, for sure. <laughs> so you are creating your legacy. You, you've obviously done tremendous good already in terms of powering the good. And you have many, many, many more moments ahead. But what do you hope many years from now that your legacy is, not just for Memphis, but for our world? So what, what is your legacy? What, what do you hope that people say about you many, 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 many years from now? I would hope that people would say that Beverly Robertson was a force for transformational change. And she left the world a little bit better than she found it. And if they say that, I will rest in peace. I may not know I'm resting, but I will rest. I will rest in peace. For sure. But those two things, that's what I try to do. If we can elevate people, lift the bottom, you know, create a city where everyone has an opportunity, you know, they have to choose it, but they have an opportunity to grow and to prosper and to raise their families in a safe and positive environment then I I feel like I will have had some very teeny tiny small role in helping to make that possible. Wrap up with website. Where do we go to follow the Greater Memphis Chamber's efforts and where do we go to follow you personally? So wrap up with website, contact information. Where do we go? Okay, www.memphischamber.com. And if you want to get to Beverly Robertson, you'll have to, I don't have, I used to be on, I am on Facebook. I will say that I am on Facebook. So you can look me up on Facebook and always follow me. But frankly, the chamber is available for you to reach out to me via the chamber. 
and communicate with me. Now, it may be hard to catch me because I'm running every day. I told you I can't walk into this space, Jeremy. I've got to run into these spaces and make sure that we're doing our best to take advantage of this tremendous legacy opportunity we have for Memphis, Tennessee. And we are going to be trying to do just that. And I just want to thank you for allowing me the opportunity to talk about some of these really important issues that people don't otherwise get an opportunity to hear about. Uh, It means the world to me to have this platform that you have and allow us and our voices to be heard around these critical issues. Well, Beverly, I love you. I love everything you're doing to power the good and make a difference. Tremendous role model, even, you know, for for me personally. So I love and appreciate everything you're doing. You are a change maker. And so thank you for coming on the Change Makers podcast. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I look forward to anytime you ask me to do anything, I'm there. Okay. Take care, audience. Thank you for listening to the Changemakers podcast produced by City Current and brought to you by Lipscomb and Pitts Insurance. To learn more about our guests and share your stories of others leading by example, visit us online at citycurrent.com or follow us on social media using at City Current. Please make sure to subscribe, rate and review our podcast wherever you listen. Now, think big, start small and act now. Be a change maker.